Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. These panels have been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and Metatopia 2021. Episode 349, The Many Meanings of Diceless. Presented by John Lamich, Chance Feldstein, and Alex White. Hello, and welcome to the Many Meanings of Diceless panel at Metatopia 2021. I'd like to start out by introducing our panelists. I'm John Lemich, designer of the Colors of Magic, a randomizerless YA fantasy RPG, and blogger at Run a Game. Uh, you can find me at Run a Game on Twitter. And today I have with me Alex White. Uh, please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Alex. I'm calling in from the UK. Uh, I design games at Plain Sailing Games. Um, most recently, I've been designing story games uh, using playing cards as a mechanic. So I've left dice behind. Um, uh, and I'm particularly interested in producing games that help people feel things. Uh, so uh, I can be found on Twitter at nalexwhite. Uh, and my website's plainsailinggames.com. And I have Chance Feldstein. Hey, I'm Chance. Um, I'm, um, I, I run a website called Alchemical Gaming, which has my own games on it and also keeps track of um, articles and videos that related to the transformative uses of gaming, uh, partly therapeutic, but mostly not. Um, and I've worked on some tabletop games, some, and also written a bunch of uh, of LARPs for the Golden Cobras. All right. Uh, so first of all, there are a lot of diceless RPGs out there. Uh, it used to be more limited, right? We we used to all know about Amber and Castle Falkenstein, Nobilis, and Everway, and those were the big four diceless games that people knew about. But with the explosion of vignette games and belonging outside belonging. No Dice, No Masters games. We'll shorten that to Bob, because that's a fun way to say it. Uh, there's also Dread Hacks and Descended from the Queen that are all exploding right now. Diceless games are getting very popular lately, so I thought this is a great time uh, to have a panel, you know, for an update for the community and a discussion about it, and get some people together and just noodle about it a bit. And Metatopia is the perfect place for that. Um, this is not going to be the kind of panel where we list every awesome diceless game out there. So mm -hmm. if you're thinking, if they don't talk about the quiet year, then they've failed, then we're going to fail. Um, so we only have one hour. So uh, what do you folks think? Any initial thoughts uh, from the panel? My, my first thought is that um, I thought that diceless games were relatively new uh, because things like Nobilis and Castle Falkenstein, I've not been aware of that. But we've actually had diceless games for almost as long as we've had tabletop role-playing games. But diceless and diceless design has got a whole range of ways of looking at it. And I think in this panel, we're hoping to, to look at this from several different angles. Any thoughts, Chance? Um. I also learned a lot in in preparing for this panel. Um, uh, in fact, I've only I only just played for the Queen for the first time in the past year, and was so impressed with it. And uh, and I love the fact that there are so many games that descended from it now. Um, my my primary um, experience as a player has been with um, with Mind's Eye Theater. Uh, just the way that the gaming space is where I live, there's not even a lot of opportunity to play test some of the games I've written for the Golden Cobras. So, um, and, and as we were saying in, earlier, the, while we were preparing that um, it's almost assumed that LARPs will be diceless, but I, I have to say some of the, some of the issues I've seen with, um, with some LARP systems make me want to go back to dice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I said, in our prep, there's, I know one LARP system that uses dice. <laughs> So they're almost all diceless. And that's where a lot of these great innovations came from. Sure. Uh, you know, even looking at these early well-known diceless RPGs, you can see some styles emerging, right? Like Castle Falkenstein replaces dice with cards. 
Um, Amber takes away all randomizers and uses stat comparison. Um, Nobilis you, and Chubo's uh, uh, marvelous wish granting engine. They, that you, those use resource management. There was an early Marvel diceless game, Marvel branded, and it also used uh, stat comparison and resource management. And then um, Everway used cards as prompts. So we've seen even more creative ex approaches explode since then, like like you said. So we, they go way back, but now there's this explosion. Um, what are some really interesting approaches you have seen uh, or designed um, lately that you'd like to talk about? You can start with your own games. Like. Do you want to kick off here, Tiant, or would you like me to? Uh, go right ahead. Well, um, the uh, my uh, my biggest game so far, um, a cool and lonely courage, was diceless um, almost by accident. Uh, I I had I knew what I wanted to do for the game, uh, and as uh, just in a nutshell, in the game you play the parts of some of the women spies in the SOE in World War Two. Uh, but the game starts where you're captured, you've been captured by the Nazis, and you're going to run a series of vignettes about how your how your life led you in the spy game up to that point. And I wanted something to set themes. And I was noodling around with dice, and I thought actually playing cards would be better for me here, because with the suits I've got some really clear themes I can use. And so, so the, at the outset with the game, you're dealt a hand of six cards face down, and because of the randomness of war, you don't know how things are going to work. You draw the cards one at a time to inform how each um, chapter is going to go for you. But I added a couple of other things I could do because I was using cards. One of them is that for people who don't like the randomness, you could look at your cards and then stack them in the order you want if you want to tell a particular story. Or if you're working, you're playing the game with friends, or you could say to a neighbour, I'd like you to look at those and stack them. So they, there's going to be an order to them, but I don't know what that order is. And so that choice of using cards rather than dice opened up a much richer range of design possibilities for me. And so I've focused on using cards in some of the games I've done, done since then. Yes. Um, the one that comes to mind of mine is the game I, that I did for the Golden Cobras in, the 20, in 2019. It was my first attempt at a, at a partially arts and crafts based game. It was called um, Garden of Pathos. and the, I suppose the randomness in it comes just from the players, but in a, in a directed way through character development questions. Um, and the questions lead the players to create uh, leaves for their, for their plant in Baba Yaga's garden. Um, and the, each leaf is based on an important or emotionally significant uh, event in the, in the person's life before they were transformed into a plant. So it ends up looking, so people end up with these, these pictures all over them that look really random, but they actually are infused with meaning. It's, it's just um, that meaning may not be discussed until the workshop at the end. That's really neat. LARP can do some amazing things. Um, I once designed a LARP for the Golden Penguin back in the Intercon Mid-Atlantic days uh, with Kurt Dankmeyer. We used dollar store cap guns as a randomizer. Uh, if it actually worked, you shot someone dead. It was a Shakespearean <laughs> was a plot That is awesome. Um, and that's 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 neat. So my own game, The Colors of Magic, is completely randomizerless. There's no cards, no no dice. You uh, choose from a menu whenever anyone says your action mm -hmm. is a risk. And the the menu has everything from complete calamity, everything goes wrong, and your relationships are pushed against and tested, all the way up to you know simple success and even critical success. And my experience running the game and seeing it played is that the simple success is the least popular option, and the critical success, which is slightly more interesting, slightly more popular. But the complicated yeah. success options, people willingly choose them because they want some uncertainty. And that made me think about diceless games in different ways because systems. You have inputs and outputs, or in you know inputs and outcomes of the rules, and you know oftentimes the inputs to a system are what the the, the dungeon master opens the book and says you know you enter a ten foot mm -hmm. by ten foot room it is dimly lit and an orc stands in front of a treasure chest. There's always an orc in front of a treasure chest. <laughs> um, 
and the 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 GM is an input. Sometimes they have random tables, though. You know, even old school D and D, they'd roll dice on a table to randomize the input, um, and other player actions are your other inputs. And so you respond to that stuff, and then the dice in a typical RPG generate an outcome. Um, but not all diceless games emerging right now have any kind of uncertain outcomes. Like for the queen, the input is random. You draw, and then you narrate a scene in a vignette. It's really mm-hmm. cool uh, in response to the prompt. There's no like role to see if you do the thing in those vignettes. Um, up until the end, I believe, uh, it's been a while. Um, so, you know... Um, but for, for the queen, will it'll, it'll sometimes say, like, this thing happened, but how did it happen? And then you have to expand on that, which I think is a form of, I mean, like, it's, it's prompting and it is random. Yeah, so it, it's random what card you get, so your input is random. And then right. how it resolves is up to you. It's not random or even unpredictable. You can describe sure. it. But it's unpredictable to me because I'm watching you describe it. I don't know what you're going to say. So there's unpredictability in different ways. Um, you know, a lot of games, yeah. the, the basic ones, Castle Falkenstein again, or Dread, they replace the randomizer in a traditional game in a lot of ways, Castle Falkenstein especially, with a substitute randomizer. Dread is a different beast, but there's still a, you know, a pull, and you see what happens with the pull, and it grows increasingly difficult. But like Castle Falconstein, you're you're doing you know ability checks and stuff like that, like Dungeons and Dragons, but with playing cards. What are mm-hmm. some um, of your favorite games that use a substitute randomizer or a comparison system, like um, Nobilis or things like that? You got any favorites in that that space? I've got a soft mm-hmm. spot for all of the games that use um, prompts. Um, I like that kind of thing, and that's partly because. If you've got the whole world of possibilities to think about, then I'm like a deer in headlights and I can't decide anything. But one or two prompts, that starts me thinking and really helps me. Um, There's a a game that I imagine not many people have heard of that's got a really weird um, randomizer, is um, Annulus Annulus of the Sky. And I'm saying every single word there incorrectly, apart from of and the. Uh, it's by Stephen Dewey, who you'll know more from Ten Candles. And the randomizer there is at the start of the game, everyone's writing down some little snippets of information on uh, slips of paper and fold them up. But then as the game progresses, you pick from this pile of random snippets, some of the things you've written, some which other people have written, and you're going to incorporate those into the, the vignettes as you work your way through this subterranean terrain. And that's a kind of a a really weird one because you're generating your own prompts based around this odd world that you're building at the same time. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of one. I'm having a, a moment here. If you want to go ahead. Sure. Yeah. So Alex mentioned constraint as a way to generate unpredictability. You know, if you have a group of friends you know really well and you just get together and say, let's all make up a story, I really know mm-hmm. what these other people are going to say. But if they have to answer a specific prompt, that's going to, it adds unpredictably for them because they don't know what the prompt is. It's mm-hmm. going to throw them off their set. And it's also going to throw them off their set for me. I'm going to see them responding to a prompt in a creative way. I think that's pretty cool. So I played a, a campaign playthrough Fall of Magic that was like that. It's all prompts. Mm-hmm. There are dice but they're not used in a traditional way. And I played a long campaign of Nobilis, which doesn't have prompts at all. It's, it's a completely different beast. Um, and it uses, um, you go back and forth in stance a little bit, but you, you use um, uh, resource management in that game. And I think resource management is a fun uh, way that diceless games can work. Mm. Um, it's a popular mechanic in dicey games too, like Dungeons and Dragons spell slots, and uh, willpower points and werewolf or whatever. But, um, you know, you're, you're managing your point pools and you don't know what's coming. Um, even though there's no dice, uh, you don't know what's coming and you don't know what you're going up against. Yeah. I think we like randomizers as well for the uncertainty it brings. And that's one of the places where the Jenga tower is, is as far removed from dice because in a way it's randomizing just one event 
when is the when is the the tower going to fall? Uh, but the the point of it is it builds tension as the game progresses, as you're as you're getting closer and closer to the horrible thing happening. Or the great thing if you're playing uh, Starcrossed. Well, it could mm. be great. It could also be horrible. Well, yeah. <laughs> Um, what is the weirdest substitute randomizer you've seen? Ooh, I have a favorite for this one. Um, and I tried to find this game and I had so much trouble finding it. Uh, I'm really waiting to be able to, to search the Golden Cobra site because right now there's not really an easy way to do it. Um, there was a game a few years ago. I wish I can remember who wrote it. Uh, that was a superhero game where the, like you're racing against the clock. And um, I forget exactly what it is that happens, but like you're eventually going to lose your powers. And what determines whether you lose your powers is um, each of you sits at the corner of a paper towel. In the middle of the paper towel, you have um, a piece of ice. And when the corner that's net that's in front of you is wet, your powers go away. <laughs> that's pretty random. Yeah, it's extremely random, and I saw it, and I was like, wow, I had no idea anyone could do this in a game. I love it. That's wild. (laughs) Yeah. You never know what's going to come out of the Golden Cobras. I think the weirdest thing I've seen is a... uh, And this isn't so much um, a randomizer as something to generate unpredictability, and that's in... um, It's another game uh, by Stephen Dewey. not out yet, but I've playtested it at Metatopia in the past. Uh, gather children of the Evertree. The first part of it is business as usual. Cards are, with, are drawn and uh, they've got prompts. But everyone replies to the prompt at exactly the same time, babbling together. Um, and you can ask people questions, but you've got two sticks. To ask a question, you've got to give somebody a stick. And if you're out of sticks, you can't ask questions. And so the this... It's not quite a randomizer, but it's this currency, which you can, you've only got two and you can expend those. And the people who gather the sticks, they can control the way the conversation goes. That was really unusual the first time I saw it. Wow. That's a little bit like how Hill Folk works with um, earning tokens, but not, not exactly. I'd love to. But in a way, a little stricter. Uh, I've been, I've, I've played one game of it and I was burning to ask another question, but I was out of sticks. <laughs> um, that's neat. Um, uh, yeah. Um, there's a game in Codex magazine, the Gauntlets magazine, that, that involved a uh, campfire and a rope that I recall. And I don't remember exactly how that worked. But you like you use the rope as resource management, and you, the farther away you got from the fire, mm. the darker things got for you. Uh, mm. And the rope was just the measure. Um, I would love to see a game that uses a calendar as a as a substitute randomizer. Like, you know, if you play just taking notes here, or the the events of the game are totally different than if you played in you know March of two thousand twenty three or something. Somebody get out and do that. Uh, so you know, you know, I was thinking about how RPGs use unpredictability as a core thing. Anytime you make a game of something, there has to be unpredictability to some mm-hmm. degree. I think a lot of things that people don't think of as RPGs, but still really count. I don't want to gatekeep, right? They still use unpredictability, um, even when you're not playing a single character through the whole thing, like the Final Girl or Microscope they still find a way to add unpredictability to it. And sometimes mm-hmm. that's from the other players. You know, they, um, I think you get constraint by passing authority around. Like, Microscope determines who decides the theme by turn, t- turn-taking. And if you don't decide the theme, then that theme is decided by someone else, so you don't get to predict what the theme mm-hmm. of this section wound up being. Um, or um, So you've got unpredictability at, at, at the the big... You know, imagine a big Venn diagram or whatever. Unpredictability is is part of every game, but then constraint can produce unpredictability. It's a kind of producing unpredictability. Like I don't have the power mm-hmm. to determine the theme as a constraint, or I have to answer this prompt is a constraint. 
And then randomizers can provide constraint. Uh, even dicey games use dice as a randomizer to provide mm. constraint. I rolled my d20 and added my attack modifier, and I missed according to the Dungeons and Dragons rules. So I have to narrate that my character missed the goblin. You know, I rolled my charisma and I, I got a 25 after adding all the stuff. And now I can narrate how I intimidated the goblin. So the dice are a randomizer. The randomizer is a constraint and a constraint adds unpredictability. It's this sort of nested thing. And so when you just yeah. back away from dice, you still have randomizers and constraints, even just prompts, nothing randomized at all is still a constraint. I think that's uh, a fun way to think of it. And Alex said something in our prep for this panel that some games add unpredictability in the inputs, like his own game. And some games focus on unpredictability in the outputs. So if you compare A Cool and Lonely Courage to Nobilis, both diceless, one focuses on randomizing your prompts the the scenes that yeah. you have to do and the the prompts you respond to and the latter random it doesn't randomize it um it adds a unpredictability through the resource management system abilis to the outcome of your action but it's still got a traditional gm and it, it does it's not focused on that mm. Mm. Um, what you know what are your thoughts about inputs and outputs I'm happy to jump in first again, um, if that's okay, Chance. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, I love both kinds of games. I love exploring a dungeon and you don't know what's behind the door. You don't know um, what's going to happen uh, as you um, uh, talk, to, talk to the wizened old man and ask him for clues about the, the adventure. Um, I love that. But I also love things where we have randomizing the inputs to things um, and uh, yeah, how we go with that. Um, games with kind of fixed stuff, I found really hard to get to grips with at first. Um, the gumshoe games, they kind of have a six-sided dice, but the key isn't the dice. It's that your, your skills are the number of points that you can choose to apply to the dice when you want to. And you know that you've typically got to get, I don't know, four to succeed. So if you spend three, you're definitely going to succeed. And I've played with people who are risk averse and they always spend just enough to make sure they succeed, which is super. Other people think I like a bit of risk. I'll include a bit of risk. But what I see here is it, it puts it empowers the player to decide where they're going to look good. And that, I think, is a really interesting thing, particularly as you get into some of the more um, kind of the fixed things where it doesn't look like you've got a randomizer it's diceless but it gives the power the, the the player more empowerment about where they're going to shine Dance, any thoughts um i'm i'm new to the concept of in, inputs and, and outputs when it comes to like ju just when doing this panel so um can you can you refresh me on on how you're defining them again Sure. Yeah, it was a in in our prep for the panel, Alex came up with this idea, and I thought it was really smart. Inputs are what prompts the player you're responding to, and outputs are how the system helps you decide how an action goes. It's pretty arbitrary, but they're a useful frame for diceless games because some focus on one and some on the other. Sure. Yeah. Um, hmm. So. I suppose I would think of inputs as something that's really useful for character creation, um, and and you said and outputs like you were saying, but something more useful for action resolution. So, um, like for myself as a as a player and and also as a designer, like I think I I favor games that uh, where a lot of the randomness does come from the other people because I think of people as inherently pretty random, especially when you put a whole bunch of them together in one place. Um, I, I grew up on, on, on D and D and, and, you know, the, um, I feel like, especially in earlier editions of D and D, the, um, the relationship between the DM and the players was a little bit adversarial. And so when I finally learned about more collaborative styles of play, I was like, oh, wow, this is super shiny. And I'm still kind of in that phase. <laughs> 
Um, collaboration versus that adversarial DM relationship is, is there's an old forge concept of stance that I think mm -hmm. is also useful when you look at, at these different diceless games, especially, you know, um, the traditional I'm playing one character and I don't know how my actions resolve because real human beings don't know if they're going to hit the goblin or scare the orc or whatever. That's where you've got your typical dicey game, right? Mm -hmm. But then when you back away from that, you start to play with stance and you get a lot of games where you are um, totally in director stance. Again, microscope. You're just constantly thinking about the story. I'm, I'm, I'm writing parts of the story and who's going to play what character? And can we make up a character for Alex to play in this next scene? Um, and then you've got games like Amber, where you're told, no, even in character creation, you are playing your character and you are in conflict with the other player's character, even in character creation. I think that's mm. wild to me. Mm. Uh, <laughs> There's a nice thing I saw in game, uh, Lovecraft-esque, which I was yeah. playing a couple of weeks ago by Black Armada, where, um, in the game, there's a witness, a narrator, and the, the whisperers, um, and the roles move around every every scene. So everyone gets to be the witness seeing horrible things happening, the narrator who's describing what's happening and setting the scene, and the whisperers, can they just kind of interject little bits of extra detail or little bits of creepiness into it. And it's a great way of keeping everybody engaged. And as you were saying, Chance, you're bringing everybody's minds to bear on bringing creativity into it. That uh, is a great transition into what I'd like to have everyone talk about next. And that's the other really popular diceless games right now. And that's the Bob games um, that started with Dream Askew and Dream Apart uh, by Avery Adler. And in those games, you share the GM authority. They're GM full is a common phrase used for them because there's still a GM role, but it's split up among the players, and you control different aspects of reality responding mm. to the group. There's no GM, but everybody has a piece of the GM role. And I think, I mean, these games are also totally randomizerless. You have to earn tokens by making a weak move, and a weak move is something that adds complications to the world, adds conflict, and causes trouble. And you yeah. can you have to earn the tokens in order to use the strong moves. And the strong moves are the things that resolve the conflicts, which creates a tension. You have to go, it creates a sort of a the, the react structure in a way, right? Because uh, you build up complications through act one until you've got your first act twist. You build up more complications and resolve some things, but you collect problems until you finally can spend a bunch of tokens and resolve them. And um, those games also do the thing where you share the role of who is the judge of, you know, the, the, the mm. GM, essentially, of this, this section of thing. Some of those other games include Wander Home, which is perfect for that format. Uh, Venture and Dungeon, two separate games that were kickstarted together. And the cool sh Filipino Shadowrun thing, uh, I'm going to say this wrong, Balak Bayan. Um, and so this is really hot new design space because there's no randomizer at all. And uh, the constraint of the moves, the weak moves that you have to take and use to get the tokens to use the hard moves adds a ton of unpredictability. You know, if Alex does a weak mm -hmm. move that adds an antagonist. Now we have an antagonist. Anyway, um, so ha have you tried these games? Do you know anything about these games? Is, is this a space that you're, you're, you're interested in? For me, it's an area that I, I've not really investigated at all, but it's now my list of things I want to look at because I'm already thinking of some some game ideas that I've got that might be well suited to that kind of mechanic. Um, I've been interested in Dream Askew and Dream Apart for quite a while just because they seem like they would be amazing games to use for personal transformation and particularly dream apart because it was mentioned in the uh, in the panel on jewish gaming yesterday um it th but i mean these all sound like they would be amazing i just would need to find a good group to play them with are there any other totally randomizerless games or you have thoughts on randomizerless games in general for me i don't know um, there's this 
there's this really old one that I am kind of a fan of, even though it's most people agree that it's unplayable. It's called Aria Cantle of the Mo Canticle of the Monomyth. Um, it was made by a company called Last Unicorn Games, and the reason why I like it is because it was it's the first one it's the first RPG that I've seen. It may be the first one ever that gives you the option of instead of playing as a person, you can play as a as a tribe or a kingdom or a world even. Um, and you know it it works it work like honestly it's it's this huge like large format book that works better as kind of a world building manual than as an RPG. Mm -hmm. uh, but it um, it has almost the same premise as a game you mentioned earlier, whose name escapes me at the moment. John, microscope pool. Yeah, microscope. Yeah, I, I saw microscope when I was when I was reading up on on some of these games, and I was like, wow, it seems like someone finally actually pulled off this idea that that was that Arya tried to do so many years ago. Hmm. I've played it twice, and it's been fun both times. Uh, it's great to use as part of another game. So we used it as a season transition in a Masks a New Generation game, a dicey game, um, mm -hmm. to sort of set the stage of where things had gone after some big events, uh, which is great mm -hmm. for a comic book game because the second, you know, the new series opens with things have changed, you know? It's almost like a new author. Sure. Um, uh, anyway, so uh, what's interesting is, is how, you know, I, I come back to Stance because completely randomizerless games really span the gamut of, you know, it, it, Amber with actor stance the whole way. You are your character. You're competing mm. all the way to like the Bob games where you sort of go back and forth to author stance and even director and then zoom back down. And sometimes you take the GM role and sometimes you're inhabiting your character. My own game, The Colors of Magic, does that too. You often think about your choices of how an action resolves mm -hmm. not as your character or else you'd always pick critical success. Um, <laughs> all the way to, you know, the full director stance of Microscope. Um, and so some pieces of that, you know, it's interesting what elements of those games push those different stance focus, right? The <laughs> presence of a GM in um, Amber and the presence of a GM in The Colors of Magic help you get into actor stance because you don't have to control the world. Um, mm. So, you know, encouraging a stance is something you have to think about when you're designing a game. and. A diceless can go the whole range. It, just not having dice doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to be all story e and director stance the whole way. I asked um, um, the uh, the creator of Lovecraft Lovecraft esque um, Josh why he chose to have the roles rotate around the group of people playing, and he said that he thought it was really interesting to give everybody the chance to experience each of those roles while you're playing the game which I thought was a really interesting um, uh, way of tackling it, particularly in a horror game, where often in a horror game, so much relies upon the unknown, whereas here you were collaboratively creating it and having fun on being horrible to the witness as the, the role moved around the group. It's very important. If you want bleed out, that's a LARP term. So Chance is going to know all about that. If you want bleed <laughs> out, feeling of fear to bleed out from the game to the player, you need to be inhabiting the character and immersed mm. as the character and actor stance. If you're thinking, oh, we should torture my character. What horrible things can I do to them? You're not going to feel the fear that your character feels. So craft mm. esque shifting the witness role gives everybody a turn to be scared, but also gives everybody authorship. Yeah, I was also thinking that um, rotating the GM role or co-creating scenes in some way, it uh, it helps to mitigate the issue where if there's a single GM who's always in charge that people might, and, and there's no randomizer, um, then people may feel like things are overly arbitrary and unfair. Um, and, I mean, probably, I mean, I want to believe this is less of a problem when the people you're playing with are your friends, but I'm not sure I actually believe that. Yeah. Well, if you go back <laughs> all the way back to Amber, it tells the GM to be very adversarial. And the players <laughs> really. <laughs> Um, but then if you get to my game, The Colors of Magic, the rules forbid the GM from using any content that's not provided to them by the players at character creation. So you can't mm. be an adversarial GM. And also, at any point, the player can say, this is a risk. I choose critical success. So you can't succeed at being adversarial, even if you try. But you can't mm. just throw a bunch of stuff at them that they are not prepared for. Um, so how you mandate the GM roles used 
is also important. And it's interesting, you talked about, back to Lovecraft-esque, though, because, or did you have a response to that chance? Um, well, just quickly, I was going to say that's one of the reasons why I tend to like Powered by the Apocalypse games, because they frame the GM as more like just a special player. Um, and, you know, r rather than like being an authority. But uh, yeah, go on, please. So when I was thinking about Lovecraft-esque, it makes me think about how you have a rotating uh, GM role, essentially. There are a lot of games where there's formal judging as a outcome unpredictability, mm. right? So Hillfolk, I mentioned before, you bring a petition to the other player's character and you say, we really can't keep having the cattle out in the eastern field. There's too much risk of them being stolen by the other tribe. And there's a back and forth. And then at the end, they judge the petition. And if you know certain rules come into play, the whole table votes, and then there's a token system, there's no dice. And then there's also um, Fiasco, classic judged mm -hmm. game, right? You can either narrate the scene and then have the, all the other players decide how it goes, or you can mm -hmm. decide how it goes, and then they decide what the scene is about, which is really yeah. neat. It's a judge. So judged games are another way to add unpredictability not randomized, not randomness to outcomes. I, I think that the judge games do add an extra consideration, which is that you have to be comfortable with the group of people you're gaming with. Um, uh, fiasco, I, I find, is relatively easy because you know what kind of movie you're in and, and it's all going to go to hell in the handcart anyway. Yeah. Um, Hillfolk, that's got a lot more potential to be quite antagonistic uh, and more potential for a bit of kind of gin bleed over a feeling soon. It says, come on, yeah, cut my character a break, won't you? Um, and I think that's a situation where being comfortable with the people you're playing with is really important. Yeah, safety tools are critical on a lot of these games because you can't, you know, one of the reasons Gary Gygax wanted to use dice for everything was so he could blame the dice. Oh, no, I didn't kill your character. We <laughs> rolled. It was fair. You just had to get a 16 and you'd survive. <laughs> yeah uh, so setting the dice aside really does yeah even setting especially setting randomizers aside you take that yeah. buffer away you need some more safety tools i agree i do I, I do think that um it's something that people designers have to think about very clearly or carefully is how are they going to make really crystal clear to people how things are going to work um uh and i mentioned this hill folk was the first game i ever backed on kickstarter uh, Ooh, me too, actually. <laughs> yeah, love the idea. I've never managed to actually make a make a game of it work yet because there's I just can't get exactly how it works. And this isn't a this is not a, a condemnation of the game, which I think is a fantastic idea, but is a problem that I've got that I somehow can't quite grasp it. Um, and it reminds me that there's things that I'll design which might be brilliant in my head, but can somebody else pick it up and understand what gameplay looks like easily? And I think that's something that we have to think about carefully when we're designing diceless games. Mm -hmm. I kind of had that issue with Hillfolk myself, like when reading it, particularly when reading the SRD, which I was planning on basing one of my games on at one point, mm -hmm. I really felt like the token system assumes there will be players who don't want to share. And if you have players who are okay with sharing the spotlight with everyone else, then you might not even need it. Hmm. Um, but like, I also didn't fully understand it. So I, there must be nuance to it that I'm not getting here. Might be a, you have to play it to, to really get it type of thing. Yeah. 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 But I do think that there's, I've also, I have played a fair bit, amount of fias fiasco and um, I like, while I do think it's true that, it's important to set expectations, but even if you do that, it, it matters a lot what kind of group you have. Mm -hmm. I have played Fiasco where one person used their their narration ability when they had it to just advance the the um, the aims of their own character to try to end up on top at the end. You definitely can do that, and you can do it strategically with the dice in Fiasco too, even though they mm -hmm. aren't really rolled for anything important until the end. With the card um, what? Second edition's a card game now. Oh, that's right. I knew about that, but I've only played the first edition. Sorry, go on. No, I was about done. Oh, okay. 
Um, yeah, I've I've been a big fiasco evangelist. I've run it for new players and people new to RPGs uh, more than I run it for people I'm good friends with. So I've had experiences where they've done where people have just sort of mm. uh, they've just been trying to win, and it's like, well, that's mm. not actually how you win. You want to <laughs> yeah. get all the white dice or all the black dice? That's how you win. Uh, uh, and it's win is in big scare quotes. Right. right? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. You do need to set really clear expectations for that. That mm. that's true. Um, sure. Uh, so I'm, I I want to turn it a little bit because I've got Alex White, designer of A Cool and Lonely Courage, here on the panel with me. So I want to talk about storytelling games, which have often been called vignette games, um, where players take turns framing a scene and playing it out. Yeah. Um, you know, often in response to a prompt, sometimes you narrate the whole scene. Sometimes you say, hey, you know, Alex, you play the baker mm. and Ants, you play the cop. Um, but, you know, it, that varies. Um, so I want to, you know, for the queen and fall of magic, we mentioned too. So, Alex, give me your thoughts. You know, what are some common characteristics of these types of games? You know, what's next? What are the trends? Um, so, I think common common characteristic one of them is that uh in a vignette you typically have the protagonist and audience and at the outset of a vignette you're going to people ought to know what the protagonist is aiming to get out of that how it's going to go and then as the audience uh, supporting characters that they play you're working to give the main character of that scene the outcome that they're aiming for um and if you know that they're they're aiming for uh, this, this one's going to be this going to have heartbreak here. You play into that. If it's one where uh, they're really successful, then you play into that. Uh, and it's a it's a great opportunity to build up your fellows in the game. And I really like that. Um, and in something like for the queen, where as the story is developing for the whole group, it's very much yes and you build on where things are going. And sometimes you'll you'll offer in additional things that uh, that you you can see are interesting to particular people, or to build on things which another character has already established about themselves. And you do your best to not undermine things, which can happen accidentally. The best will in the world. In terms of one of the thing, uh, the interesting things where I think things are going here is in the. Uh, the ability to play these games better online. And a game that I really want to call out is um, The Zone by Rafter Amico, uh, inspired by things like the movie Annihilation. Um, it's a, He's uh, got a website, The Zone, um, and you can play the whole game for free on there. Uh, it has the prompts, it has special effects, which cover, which kind of bring in the theme um, and it really brings to life something that was originally planned to be a game you play with cards on the table with friends. Then a pandemic happened. Turns out he's an excellent um, uh, web UI designer and programmer. And he's produced something marvellous and put it out there for people to use freely. I think that there's a lot of interesting things that are going to happen in the online playing space. Yeah, that also happened to Alice is Missing, right? Uh, it kickstarted right. pre-pandemic and it shipped in the pandemic, and then everyone had to play it online. So he created Discord <laughs> templates and all sorts of stuff for it. So you know that's another diceless game that's totally GMless. Uh, but it is my, my most recent game. Sorry, um, my most recent game, uh, Love and Barbed Wire, which I launched this year, is a, a letter writing game. Uh, there's a soldier and their loved one back home in World War One. The soldiers in the trenches. And you play through five chapters of the war and you write letters to each other. You can play online, five minutes to write a letter and then you read them out. Or you can play over email or text or post. It's a game designed to be played by people who don't have to be at the same place and time. You know, that's that is a neat thing about those games. I played Fall of Magic, which is originally designed to be on a big scroll, but I played that on Roll20. Oh, yeah. It's just the tech implementation just has to be there. A fiasco so, with a roll twenty, and the uh, the pandemic is is a horrible thing, absolutely. 
Um, but it's remarkable the creativity is unleashed with people. And it's not just in the traditional game, but also dice list games have been able to move online. Uh, and thanks to things like this, I've actually done more role playing now with friends in America in the last year and a half than I had in the last four years prior to that. I've only got a few questions left, and I got some interesting questions from the panel. So I want to get through a couple real quick, and then we'll get to the, the, the audience questions. So um, Invisible Sun's development mode with the cards is another one where Monty Cook created an online thing to make it work, too. Just came to my head. Um, so design goals. When you're composing your, your overarching designer intent or designer goals for an RPG you're starting, like when you wrote Love and Barbed Wire, um, or Chance, when you're writing... Uh, freeform LARP. Um, I used to do that back in IMA. Um, do you ask yourself, do I want a randomizer and why every time at this point? And then how do you go about addressing that question? I don't, but I think maybe I should. Um, I have been feeling for a while that I, to some extent, I keep writing the same LARP over and over again. So um, in, including some more randomization might actually be helpful. Alex? For me, um, I kind of, I have a kind of a hammer, and so everything is nails at the moment. Um, <laughs> uh, I use cards for Love and um, Kuna and Courage and Love and Barbed Wire. I'm using cards for the game that I'm working on right now, uh, Inner Circle. This is going to be a black comedy game, uh, and that's going to be followed up by a game about suffragettes uh, and the fight for the vote in Britain. Uh, and there's a fairly good chance there's going to be playing cards in that one too. For myself, when I wrote The Colors of Magic, it was for a game jam initially, and I had to use Little Foods because it was the Our Little Foods game jam. So I used Skittles, but I didn't want them to be a randomizer. So I said, you're picking the Skittles, but that's not a randomizer. And when I did a read, when I learned how to do desktop publishing layout and redid the game, I kind of de-emphasized the Skittles and said, optionally, you can use Skittles. Uh, but that's why, you know, I chose not to have a randomizer because I wanted to take as much game, traditional game out of it as possible so we could focus mm. on beliefs and relationships. Um, so that's how it happened to me. Um, any last thoughts, any last mechanical insights you've seen in Diceless games that are ripe for importing into Dicey games? Um, there's, there's kind of one and a half things I'd like to say there. One specifically on that. But the other is I would like to say a little bit about journaling games as well. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I skipped that question. Go ahead. Yeah. But um, for the one of the things that I think we already see kind of importing into dicey games, um, uh, you mentioned earlier um, lists of tables, list of options, um, night witches, uh, powered by the apocalypse game. Um, but when things go wrong, there's a list of kind of bad things that you could choose. One of them is you die. Now, you could check off all of the less bad things until you get to you die, but you could decide at an early point, do you know what? This is the point where it makes sense that I die. Uh, and that's one where there's, there's this list of really interesting options. And depending upon the situation of the game, ordinary dicey game, but here I think, right, I don't roll on this table. I'm going to choose which is the interesting thing that happens to me now. And I, th I think it'd be interesting to see more games using that as a, um, you know, even for sake of argument, uh, you, get the, the, uh, you get speared by the orc, you're at zero hit points, choose one of these things. And, you know, one of them is going to be, I die impaled, but there could be other things there. Once you've checked them off, you can't have them again. There's some interesting possibilities there, I think. Um, I don't. Uh, <laughs> I think I may be out of ideas here. All right. Well, uh, then what we'll do is I'll go and give everybody a chance to introduce themselves again for the for the audience, and then we'll get to the audience questions because we have until five thirty, as I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Don't forget the journaling games bit. Oh, okay. Yeah. Let's. Yeah, that's true. I. I. Before we do that. I do want to talk about journaling games because journaling games are a kind of vignette game, right? 
Um, and in my experience with them, all the ones I've tried use dice, but, you know, Alex brought up, you know, there are a lot that don't. And mm -hmm. so um, we should talk about that because there's a lot of exciting stuff going on in that space. A thousand year old vampire, even though it's got dice, doesn't use them in a traditional mm. way. And anyway, go ahead, Alex. You have some things to think of, to talk about. So um, another one that came out last year was um, Wait For Me by Gion Shim and Kevin Culp. Uh, and there, there were 30 days worth of prompts that came out. And you, the recipient of the prompt, were moving backwards and forth, thinking about your own history and then answering prompts, writing letters to your past self. Uh, and along the way, it, uh, as people talked about what they were finding, and again, they, some of the people found it incredibly cathartic. Uh, and at the end of the day, you have something that you've created. And even um, a thousand-year-old vampire, you're writing things and erasing things as you go. Um, and at the end, and that's one of the things I find fascinating about journaling games, you end up with an artifact that you've created. It's not just the ephemeral experience of enjoying a game with friends, but there's something you could put in the bookshelf and go back to and revisit. And I think that's really interesting. It's a real unleashing of creativity for individuals. So thank you, uh, Alex White and Chance, Chance Feldstein. Um, I'm John Lemich at Run a Game on Twitter, uh, www.runagame.net. Um, go ahead and give me your your how to reach you guys, and then we'll move on to some of these interesting audience questions. Alex? I'm N. Alex White on Twitter. Uh, very happy to follow people. Um, and my website is plainsailinggames.com. And I, you can find my games there. I also review things and blog about gaming-related subjects. And chance. OK, my website is alchemicalgaming.com. I don't really use Twitter, but I'm Chance J. Feldstein on Facebook. All right, I don't know how much time. I think we have nine minutes, so we'll see how many of these we can get to. Um, uh, Genesis yep. of Legend asks, oh, do you want to read them out? You can totally do so. Yes. So Genesis of Legend asks what your thoughts are on Amber Diceless and how fate evolved from it using dice as a way to pull away from the average expected result. Um, so I was only recently made aware in my prep for this uh, panel that fate evolved from Amber. So I don't have any thoughts on how fate evolved from it because it's I've only known about that for about a week. Um, but uh, the idea that dice pull away from the average, you know, obviously you can use a substitute randomizer to pull away from the average. But I'm going to question, you know, in, in Amber, you often know the target number you're going against because I'm dueling Alex's character and he's got 39 in fighting and I've got 37 in fighting. So I know I'll never win. And that's I think that's why they did it. Um, but there's a lot more to talk about in there. So I want to give the other panelists a chance to talk about that. I've never played Amber, so I don't have much to add on to that, I'm afraid. Yeah, I've never played Amber either, although I have had friends who did. And I've, I've read a little bit of Fate, but um, only part of it. So not really sure. Well, I can a... see how, I can, sorry, just to, um, also, in my head, I can see how the fate adding plus or minus above a, a value, good chance of getting plus or minus one, very small chance of getting plus or minus four. Um, I can see why that is, is good if people have, in Amber can optimize their characters so that they know that they can always succeed and then they spam the thing that always succeeds. If there's that kind of gameplay situation, I could see adding that bit of randomness there could be good for both controlling that or for the players who say, yeah, I'd like to struggle a bit. Um, so I, I could see how that could move, how Amber could move into that kind of thing. Um, I think the, the traditional RPG dynamic where you have a GM who's setting obstacles for the players to overcome requires some unexpected it unpredictability. It doesn't have to be random. So if you look at Nobilis, it's a lot like fate in that you have a stat and you can spend a limited pool of points to get temporary bonuses for one action, like fate points and fate. But 
the GM sets the difficulties arbitrarily and the players aren't battling each other. So I don't know. I'm not after Alex and I know that he's got 39 and I've got a 32 or, you know, a five aspect and I've got a four. So I'll never beat him. I can spend points. So if you have fate with just the fate points and no dice, I think you're all the way there or 99% of the way there. And then you back off from that more adversarial obstacle course GM. And I think you get 100% of the way there. So we have another question about specific systems, or um, kind of talking about how you use random randomizers, asking what are ways to avoid having a substitute randomizer just feel gimmicky and actually be something worthwhile that adds to the game? Chance, you want to start with this? Because this is a big one for LARP. Yeah. Um, well, I think... I mean, much as I enjoyed playing these games, I think the first couple editions of, of Mind's Eye Theater didn't do this very well. Um, I think that uh, for when moving from tabletop vampire or mage or werewolf to live action, the problem used to be that a lot of the gradations of success were lost. Like if I if my if I had a like in tabletop, you have a target number and you're, you're trying to roll a certain number of d10s over that target number. So if I get like one or two, that's an okay success. If I get three or four, it's a better success. If I get five or more, it's a complete, really good success. So with rock, paper, scissors, you pretty much just get success or failure. Um, in the most recent editions of uh, Vampire and Werewolf LARP, um, the ones from By Night Studios, the way that they worked around this, even though they still use rock, paper, scissors, was to change some of the powers, all of the powers, actually, the, the disciplines, so that um, they work differently based on whether your character is specialized in a certain stat or not. So the, the, well, the things that would normally come from exceptional successes now come from being specialized in perception or specialized in dexterity or whatever it may be. So these same powers will work differently based on which character it is and um, based on how they're specialized, but it still, to other players, looks random-ish, I suppose, and while still using the same system. Yeah, having designed a LARP with a gimmicky uh, substitute randomizer, the cap guns, I will say mm. um, sometimes gimmicky. The gimmick is the point. If the de if your design goal is is answered and supported by the gimmick, then it is a good gimmick. Like dread is a great example because mm. you're playing this Jenga game. So the if you've ever played Jenga, the tension literally increases as you go on until it falls. Mm -hmm. And Starcrossed, same thing, right? The tension, the 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 romantic sexual tension of Starcrossed, just just building and building as you play the game. And you can't get that with a less gimmicky randomizer. You literally need gravity, mm -hmm. literal gravity, to help you. <laughs> um, so there you go. Uh, Alex, any thoughts there, or want to go to our final question? I think it'd be good to go to the final question, because we've only got a few minutes left. Yeah. So we have uh, a Fool in His Folly uh, agreeing about how Bob games are good for personal transformation, but asking if you can kind of speak a bit more on this, on how these games as in general are able to do things that, like personal transformation that other games might not be able to. Since I brought that up, um, I mean, my feeling is that if you're if you if you have personal um, issues or not so much issues, but like if you have like personality stuff or or skills or whatever that you want to work on through a character, uh, that the fewer the fewer mechanics there are to pull you out of character, the better it will be, um, or at least the the quicker you may make that progress. Now. If you, it's also true that uh, really quick personal evolution can lead to to higher than usual bleed out. So that's something that you may have to be careful of. But um, I think uh, like highly narratively focused games that are that are light on on resolution mechanics or specifically on randomness. Um, lead to fewer situations where um i don't know where um 
where your goals are thwarted in ways that don't seem logical, I suppose. And that that might also be useful for whatever people are working on. My my thoughts on it, having designed a game that's about character personal transformation, is I'm curious if A Fool and His Folly is interested in the player's personal transformation or the characters. And either way, giving the players the ability to decide when their complications arise and how is what's key there. So you can choose what the complication is, when it happens, and how. That gives you the ability to explore that personal transformation, whether it's the character's growth, as in the Colors of Magic or Wonder Home, or whether it's the player's growth, which is a very nice benefit of role-playing games in general, mm-hmm. even the dicey ones. Any last thoughts? I think we're at our time. I'm good, there. All right, then thank you both, and thank you, audience, for attending Metatopia. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Chance. Um, And uh, it's been wonderful having this panel with you guys. Agreed. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Much appreciated. And thank you to our moderator.